This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 19th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. It would be ridiculous to call Antonin Scalia a libertarian, but his focus on the text and original meaning of the Constitution certainly was heartening to libertarians. Cato Institute Vice President for Legal Affairs Roger Pilon discusses some of the good and bad of the late justice's jurisprudence. Well, Scalia was really a great guy, uh, those of us who knew him personally. Uh, I didn't know him all that well, but I ran into him from time to time, and invariably we'd get into a spirited discussion. The first time I met uh, Nino was in 1984. That's uh, when Cato had its uh, great conference on economic liberties and the judiciary. Um, Just a little background there. I was in the Reagan administration at the time, and I got together the year before, 1983, with Ed Crane and Jim Dorn uh, for lunch with the idea of pushing uh, uh, them to hold a conference on economic liberties in the judiciary, something I'd been writing on for several years. And on the back of a paper napkin, I sketched out the conference, and lo and behold, Jim Dorn put it together a year later. Uh, I spoke at the conference on the second panel right after the great debate between uh, then-Judge Antonin Scalia on the D.C. Circuit and Richard Epstein, the University of Chicago. Um, I'll never forget that because uh, Scalia got up there first and gave his uh, talk uh, about judicial restraint and that, sure, economic liberties are a great idea, but they're not found expressly in the Constitution, and therefore the court should defer to the political branches with respect to protection of economic liberties. Epstein got up and he said, I threw away all my notes. I'm going to respond directly to Nino, and in he unloaded. And it was a, quite a uh, quite a spectacle, the exchange between the two of them. And uh, the American Enterprise Institute published that debate as a standalone, uh, conf- a standalone brochure. Um, we th- then, in the Cato um, Journal, well, I wasn't with Cato at the time, uh, we published the whole proceedings in the Cato Journal in 1985. Then two years later, uh, the George Mason University Press that existed at that time republished it, uh, the whole proceedings, with um, a foreword by then uh, Judge um, Alex Kosinski on the Ninth Circuit. And so it really took off with uh, quite a life of its own. So that was my first meeting with with Nino. Um, Then in 19... Uh, 93, I invited him over to—I was now with Cato and had set up the Center for Constitutional Studies, and I invited him over to lunch uh, here. And um, that, too, was quite a spirited exchange. Uh, uh, Several of us here at Cato—Cato was quite small at the time compared to what it is today. And we sat around the table in the boardroom. And um, the first thing uh, Scalia said, do you have any wine? (laughs) Well, we didn't think that uh, he uh, drink during, uh, drank during his day job, but uh, I suppose uh, we should have anticipated that, um, knowing him by reputation as we did. And so we sent an intern out to get a bottle of wine, and uh, we had our uh, lunch over, uh, over wine and uh, sandwiches. And uh, he um, – I remember at one time – oh, this, this is funny. Um, at that time, we were – urging the court 
to revive the doctrine of enumerated powers, the idea that the Congress has only certain limited powers that are set forth in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, and that the balance of powers, as the Tenth Amendment makes clear, belong to the states or to the people. And I said to him, Nino, when are you ever going to revive the doctrine of enumerated powers? Oh, Roger, we lost that battle a long time ago, he said. I said, well, thank you for that council of despair. And we all chuckled. Uh, but two years later, in the Lopez case, United States v. Lopez, lo and behold, there he was on the right side of that decision that was written by Chief Justice Rehnquist, which was the first time in 58 years that the court had revived the doctrine of enumerated powers. We were elated over that because we had commissioned a study. We weren't doing briefs at that time. We had commissioned a study from Glenn Harlan uh, Reynolds, Instapundent today, uh, on, on that case. And I remember I slapped a title on it, Kids, Guns, and the Commerce Clause. Is the court ready for constitutional government? We thought that title might catch their attention. And we rifled that into all the clerks and the justices on the court. And I remember, because I was in the court uh, during oral argument, and I swear they could have been uh, asking questions directly from that policy analysis. It was really quite an experience. And as I said, a few months later, the decision came down and the court finally revived, at least at the edges, the doctrine of enumerated powers. Scalia, in one of his writings in uh, Regulation magazine, talked about how uh, Dwight Eisenhower viewed himself as pulling from the great traditions of both Republicans and Democrats, but there was something that Scalia pointed out that it is odd to think of economics as something separate from economic, from the affairs of life, and that a lot of the court's decisions uh, in the 60s and 70s were uh, treating economic liberty quite poorly, and that has a long history. Yes, economic liberty and property rights were reduced to a kind of second-class status by the New Deal court in a case called United States v. Caroline Products, footnote four, where they distinguish by implication two kinds of rights, fundamental rights and non-fundamental rights. If a law implicated a fundamental right like speech and voting and later on certain personal liberties, then the court would apply strict scrutiny. The government would have to have a compelling interest. The means it employed would have to be narrowly tailored, and the law would probably be found unconstitutional. By contrast, if, it, if a law implicated non-fundamental rights like property, uh, contract, the rights we exercise in ordinary commercial relations, then the court would apply the so-called rational basis test, which is no test at all. It's essentially saying that if the government has some reason, if you can conceive of a reason that would justify the act, that's good enough. And so you had the floodgates opened up to the modern regulatory and redistributive state, and that continued and had indeed continues to this day, the rational basis test, although over the past several years, uh, a number of cases have come down that are giving some teeth to the rational basis test. And so that's a very promising sign. But this idea 
that economic liberties are not uh, at the core of liberty is so far-fetched from what the founders understood. Indeed, James Madison, the principal author of the Constitution, wrote a wonderful essay in 1792 called Property, and in it he makes no distinction between economic liberties or other liberties. They're all of a piece. And of course, Scalia was very much of a friend of this approach, but he was working within the jurisprudence that we had inherited from the New Deal Constitutional Revolution. And so, as a judicial restraint proponent, he was reluctant to weigh in. He wanted to leave it to the political branches, the very political branches that were undermining economic liberty. The uh, distinction, judicial restraint and judicial activism seem uh, fairly meaningless once you try to apply what those terms mean in any given case with varying uh, interpretations of what the Constitution actually means. What was Scalia's role, or what you know, what was what was Scalia at his best and worst in dealing with the issue of how courts ought to engage with law, the Constitution, and quite possibly over overturning some laws. Well, here too, a little background is necessary to really answer your question. You have to go back to the post New Deal world. There, the courts, after the infamous court-packing scheme that Roosevelt unveiled in, the, in January of 1937, after the landslide election of 1936, his threat to pack the court with six new members, which didn't succeed on its face, but did ex succeed in practice. You have to go back to that because what you had was the court essentially stepping out of the picture in a vast range of cases that were brought before it, deferring to the political branches. And that continued for about a decade and a half, um, even two decades, until the Warren and Burger courts started becoming much more active in finding rights many of which were nowhere to be found even among our unenumerated rights. Others were long overdue to be found. But that created a backlash on the part of conservatives who resisted this kind of judicial activism as they saw it. And it led such people as Alexander Bickle, who was teaching at Yale and who taught his colleague uh, Robert Bork um, much about the Constitution because Bork was not a constitutional theorist when he came out of law school at the University of Chicago and took a position at Yale Law School. Um, what Bickle did uh, in his essay was uh, in his essays uh, was speak of the the um, uh, counter majoritarian problem. The counter majoritarian problem concerned the court, which was, by definition, a, an unaccountable body of the Supreme Court, nine people. Unaccountable because they have lifetime tenure, they're not uh, elected, they are appointed uh, by the president and confirmed by the Senate, and they have the power of judicial review, which is the power to override uh, actions by the political branches. And so in that sense, they are non-democratic. So they came up consistent with the post-New Deal 
vision during those first couple of decades after 1937. They came up with this, um, this problem, the, um, the um, counter-majoritarian uh, difficulty, as they called it. And that explains how it is that people like Bickel, Bork, and Scalia all came to be proponents of judicial restraint. And the problem with that whole school of thought is that it is inconsistent with the founding vision. You look at uh, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78, and he speaks about the courts as being a bulwark of our liberties. So does James Madison a year later in the first Congress when he's introducing the uh, Bill of Rights. He speaks of the uh, court as going to serve as a bulwark against the overweening legislative and executive branches. And so they understood that the court was to be there as an active uh, participant in government by checking the political branches and later the states to make sure that they conformed to the strictures that were set forth in the Constitution. Unfortunately, with the New Deal revolution and the deference to the political branches, that way of looking at the Constitution fell by the way. Uh, and then you had the two schools, the activists and the restraint schools, both of which we at Cato have long said were mistaken because neither of them understood the Constitution and the role of the court under it as the founders had. There are a couple of metrics, and I, I don't put much faith in any of them when it comes to trying to define uh, ideology on the Supreme Court. But to what extent can you say with confidence that uh, Antonin Scalia changed his views or became less or more of what he claimed to be uh, during his time on the court? Well, Scalia was uh, uh, through and through conservative at the outset. But I think it's fair to say that his views evolved over time in a direction that was more sympathetic to what we've been saying here at Cato. Not entirely, to be sure. Part of the reason may have been that Clarence Thomas, when he got on the court, uh, was influential on uh, Justice Scalia. In fact, uh, Jan Crawford, in her book on the subject, it, uh, goes into some detail about how it is that the myth that, um, that uh, Thomas is a clone of Scalia is simply wrong. Uh, as often, Thomas brought Scalia around as uh, Scalia brought Thomas around. And so this evolution that I think is fair to say uh, took place with Scalia has to do with his uh, understanding that the court has to be more engaged than perhaps he thought at the outset they should be in checking the political branches. Uh, and we see that in the enumerated powers area. We see it less so in the unenumerated rights area. In the enumerated powers, uh, he, of course, um, did come out on the right side in the Lopez case in 1995, in the Morrison case in uh, 2000. Uh, he backtracked in the Rage case, the California medical marijuana case in 2005. Then again, uh, in 2012, in NFIB v. Uh, Sibelius, he uh, he was on the right side. He was on the right side there in dissent against uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, and again in King v. Burwell, he was on the right side uh, against Roberts again. Uh, on the 
enumerated, or rather the unenumerated rights side, there he was not, he was still pushing his idea that substantive due process is an oxymoron. And I'll give you an example of a case where that is. That's one that I've written on. It's called Troxel v. Granville in 2000. That was a challenge to the Washington State grandparent visitation statute that authorized grandparents and others to go into state court to get an order that would authorize them to visit the children of parents who may not wanted have wanted those people to visit their children. It arose, of course, in broken family situations and the like. And it was challenged, and the Supreme Court of the state of Washington under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, found the statute unconstitutional as a violation of the rights of the parents to control access to their children. Now, this case presented conservatives with something of a dilemma because they tend to be strong family values people and the rights of parents to control access to their children. At the same time, the conservative jurisprudence tend to be deference to the political branches especially to state legislatures. So they were torn both ways in this case. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Washington State Supreme Court and found the statute unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. But Scalia dissented. And in his dissent, he said that the right of fit parents to control access to their children is one of the inalienable rights that the Declaration of Independence speaks of and one of the unenumerated rights that the Ninth Amendment refers to. But, he added, that does not enable him to uh, say what those rights are, much less to enforce them. Well, the problem he's got there is that he's already said that these are constitutional rights under the Ninth Amendment, unenumerated rights. Well, if that's the case, then he's drawing a distinction between two kinds of constitutional rights. His duty is to uphold the Constitution, not to say if it's there expressly in the Constitution, I'll enforce it. But if it's only implicit in the Constitution, as he has said it is, then his duty would seem to be to enforce that too, but he did not. And so I think that um, this is something that we're facing with a lot of conservative judges who are slowly coming around to realize that, and here's a crucial point, during our first two years, we had no Bill of Rights. Does that mean that we had no rights vis-a-vis -vis the federal government? except for those few that were listed in the original Constitution? No. We had rights because the government had no powers. That is to say, where there is no power, by the logic of rights, there is a right. And once the 14th Amendment was enacted and provided for protection of privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States and that states shall not abridge those, then that applied against the states as well. And that's something that we have been promoting that, um, that jurisprudence for a number of years here at Cato. And a number of judges around the country are coming to appreciate that, but it has yet to reach the Supreme Court in its full measure. Roger Pallon is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.